0: Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. We gather this next hour around the gift of the inspired and true Word of God and the Word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome him. This light shines in us today as we slowly move forward in Paul's letter to the Colossians. We were greatly blessed on Friday with Dr. Paul Dieterding's insights and ended our time with these words. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now before you start thinking, Paul says amen and moves on and says nothing more. No, he has a very clear confession of who this Jesus is, the preeminence of Christ. And he moves us forward by his grace to hear even more powerful words of what he does for us today. So much grace, so much light, and so much Jesus. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To strengthen us in Christ, we have with us the Rev. Dr. Lane Berglund of Cherubusco, Indiana, and also the author of How to Read the Bible with Understanding from Concordia Publishing House, Dr. Berglund, welcome to Thy Strong Word.
1: Well, thank you for your gracious welcome, Pastor Kenner, and it's um, very good to be here. And to those who are listening, thank you for tuning in. Our um, prayer and hope today is that the Lord will teach us, that He will take over our education, and not only on a cognitive level, what we know, but also on the level of heart and will, continue to transform us daily more into the likeness of Christ, our Savior, Thank you for having me on the program.
0: Well, this is great to have you with us. It is an honor, as I I was talking to you beforehand, that your book, How to Read the Bible with Understanding, which I highly suggest our our listeners to read, especially as we live in a world that is... uh, Uh, not as biblically literate as maybe previous generations, but I think sometimes that's a little bit narcissistic of the past. I think we've always struggled with understanding the Scriptures, and your book definitely helped me during my college years to kind of piece some more of everything together. So, like I said, thank you for that book, and that's why it's such a joy for me to have you here uh, with us today. Now, Pastor Bergelin I've
1: been very impressed with how the Holy Spirit has been at work Certainly in my life, but in others as well. I appreciate your kindness.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks be to God, as you as you say all the time. Pastor Bergelin, this is our first time together on Thy Strong Word, and we have new listeners all the time. So can you introduce yourself and the ways that you are able to serve the Lord um, in the past and today?
1: I'm kind of the poster child for grace, and if God's uh, strength is made perfect in our weakness, then I am also the poster child for God's strength. I come out of a relatively non-church background, but the Lord had accomplished many things and saw to it that not only did uh, I complete school, but seminary and then further work beyond. And above that even was the uh, privilege and honor of serving his people for over 40 years as a pastor, recently retired last year and now continuing to serve him in somewhat of a scaled back uh, role, as you say but that the, the great gift of God is to know Him as our God and to lift up every day the people in our lives, and people in this world in prayer. For if there was ever a time that this world uh, needed prayer, needed God's intervention to turn hearts from self and from false gods to Him, it's this time. So it's, uh, it's a complete uh, privilege to serve Him in whatever capacity He chooses. Um, by this time, I count an old guy, has kids and, and grandkids, that sort of thing. As a result, uh, you know, there's plenty to keep me busy, but I'm always um, very appreciative of the fact that the Lord has provided. It's like uh, when Hagar um, in the wilderness was shown a well, the Lord provided for her and her son Ishmael, um, the well of the one who sees or the one who takes care of, I can join her in that confession of faith the Lord is the one who takes care of us and sees to it that we have what we need which is most of all forgiveness of sins and redemption through the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ
0: well thank you for the introduction uh, Dr. Bergland because it's something that it as we look at Colossians it, we are just past Philippians and it is, what I hear from you is a rejoicing no matter what the situation may be, and that's Philippians, right? It's rejoicing the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, and he has learned how to be content and uh, to look back and, and to, to say, uh, I rejoice, and rejoice always. And that's what I hear from you. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So as we begin our time in God's Word this morning, Dr. Bergelin, would you begin our time in prayer, please?
1: Thank you. Heavenly Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, your Son, for the gift of your Spirit, to open our minds, to understand what you've written, so that we get right what you have told us, and that we put that into practice in our life, so that not only would we grow, but those around us would see your love and your grace, your power, and your plan in our lives, and always that the outcome at the end is your glory. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: As we start digging into the scriptures, Colossians is 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 a very unique epistle because I I would argue that we we remember Philippians, that but you get to Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians and you have you know but then you get to Timothy and and others and you have those other books that at the end of the day we remember those and Colossians is never skipped. I mean it's a very well known epistle but it also is, is one that maybe isn't quite as known. You don't have as many passages that people can quote right off the top of their head. So, Pastor, do you, Dr. Berglund, do you have any um, introductory or thematic blessings that will help us out as we dig in this morning?
1: Well, Paul did write when he was uh, sort of under Roman house arrest, waiting to stand trial before Caesar. In that case, would have been Caesar Nero at the time. Maybe many of our, our listeners have heard of Caesar Nero and the burning of Rome and so forth. Nevertheless, uh, he's waiting to uh, stand trial uh, for his life before the Caesar. And as he is in house arrest, he has some freedoms. He, he can uh, write letters and receive visitors. He's still chained to a Roman guard, but that's how it goes. Mm. Nevertheless, he does write several epistles between probably 60, 61 A.D. This is but one of them. And it may not ring quite as warm a bell for us readers, because Colossae, the city, of course, to which Colossians is written, was not a city that he had visited. From what we can tell, it's just a a town in the central uh, part of western uh, Turkey today. Then it was the Roman province of Asia. And one of his faithful workers named Erastus had come from there, and Erastus is mentioned in here as a faithful companion, and there are some other things about his life and ministry. Nevertheless, this is um, written by Paul, and I, I suspect strongly it's because Erastus knew of some false doctrines, some teachers that were teaching wrongly, not only about Christ, but about salvation, about a whole lot of other things that Paul undertakes to reach out to these folks that he knows by way of Erastus, and try to get them back on a path of salvation, and back to a path of of the practice of the faith. So, you know, it maybe sometimes sounds a little esoteric, especially in the first chapter. It may sound like Paul is put on wings and is now flying in the um, top heights of theology. And then in the second chapter, it sounds uh, a little confusing, especially... When you get to verses 12 and 13 and 14, can sound a little confusing. There's terminology we don't know here. Mm. The uh, false teachings that were rampant in this area um, were only hazarding a certain amount of guesses. We know that there's this umbrella of uh, misrepresented teachings about Christ called Gnosticism, where secret knowledge kind of takes over a personal trust in our Lord and that there's all sorts of variations of this Gnosticism. Um, I suppose the closest thing we have today is New Age. You know, if you think New Age movement, um, that's probably as close as we're going to have to anything commonly in our society compared to Gnosticism. Mm. And, and so as a result, the, the place where Paul will begin, you know, after he lays the foundation, the first 14 verses, uh, is going to be, who is Jesus? And then in the next few verses that we're looking at today, he's going to address what's he done for us. And then he's going to at the conclusion answer a possible objection well if this is who Jesus is and this is what he's done for us, how come one of his main guys to it, Paul, is under house arrest in Rome awaiting trial for his life? Because you know, right. Be honest, our Lord and Savior was condemned criminal and executed for the crime. Now we know he wasn't innocent, he was innocent, but he took our sins upon him. That's how our salvation is procured. But we also know that arrest and persecution was common amongst his followers. And so it's not a bad thing for Paul to, at some point, as he will in the last few verses of today's section, identify why it is that he is uh, having legal troubles under the Roman Empire mm. and to defend it as. Plan the plan of God, unworking, unfolding, and spreading in this in this world. In a world so influenced by the enemy and by sin, and so we get you know kind of three very cool little pieces in here. Who is Jesus? What's he done for us? And why am I in
0: prison? And that's so. And and Paul does that type of um, uh, procedure, a process where he always goes back to: Who is Jesus? Who are we? And then, then applies it to the church, applies it to our lives as well. But it always—I mean, I don't. I, this is something I probably should uh, do some study on, or maybe I should assign you, Doctor Berglund, to do the study. No, um, <laughs> it's just—you know—what's the process that Paul uses? Because he is continually coming back to who Jesus is and what, who Who are we, whose are we, as we would say, and then it goes back to application. I mean, I'm just kind of, now I'm thinking about that, of, of how that often goes as we've been plowing through the epistles, and how wonderful that is, because you can't get away from Paul's words where he does not point us back to the truth and the clarity of who Jesus is.
1: There is, in Scripture, and very much for Paul, an absolute. There's an absolute truth with a capital T, which is God, the Absolute Truth, which is capital T, which is Christ our Lord, because he's the exact image and representation of the living God. And what he then says is the Absolute Truth. Now, I know in a society, in a world where everything's relative, and where you can't hardly convince anybody that there's an Absolute Anything, uh, this can be kind of a challenging point. That's what Paul has to say who is convinced of what he's suffering for and what he's going to die for is an Absolute and that is the gospel, the word of Christ, who is the truth, the one way to salvation for the one God who will judge all people. So, you know, there is that barrier that I think all people run into when looking at Christianity. And then secondly, with regards to Paul's normal practice, he will routinely, and the best place to see this is in the book of Romans, his longest work, and it's maybe the only one that isn't carved out against a false doctrine or a conflict somewhere. It's just kind of straight-up Paul writing theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in the first eight chapters, we'll talk about sin and grace, about the law and the gospel, and then the second half of that, chapters 5 through 8, he'll unpack it and apply it to our lives. Same thing can be said in Ephesians, you know, he talking about the theology of, of who is Jesus, sin and grace and salvation, the first half How do we make this uh, work in our lives by the power of the Spirit, what it's going to do? And that's a very common uh, protocol for Paul to follow when writing these letters. And we'll see it here to some extent, too. In Colossians 3, you'll get some fairly practical stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, The transition of the bridge was in chapter 2. Well, here in one, he kind of lays a foundation for us. It it is kind of just a reminder of what it's worth, that you're not going to— You and I, no human being, is ever going to get to know God except through Christ our Savior. There are no other avenues to even a simple knowledge of God. Uh, Can we deduce from nature that there is one God, not many? Yes. Can we deduce from nature that there is a creator? Oh, yeah, that's pretty easy to do unless Mm -hmm. you're really somehow loaded into trying to get rid of God so you can do what you want to, and that would be... uh, where we're at he's days and been for a while, and can you uh, deduce from this one true God who is invisible that you should worship him and not the creature, sure. And in Romans 1 and verses 18 to 21, Paul's very clear to say we're all held accountable at this level. This is this the standard by which all people should expect to face judgment. There, We, by virtue of what we can see in nature, is one true God that we should worship and nothing else. So um, that's about as much as you're going to know outside of Christ, if you want to get to know about God, who he is, what he thinks, uh, how judgment's going to go. If you want to see him, you're going to have to look at Jesus, because that is God in the flesh. Paul wants us to know that, to have a, a good foundation. If we don't get Christ right, then we don't get anything right.
0: Absolutely. And this is why we should just dig in, uh, begin, dig into this, because yes, we see God as a creator. We do see God in nature, but right now we need to see Christ and his truth. So let's begin. A reminder to our listeners that we'll be reading from the English Standard Version of, of the Bible, and we'll just begin with verse 15. There's enough here that we could spend the next hour, but we'll just do verse 15 for now. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, Pastor Berglund, right there is is a wonderful proclamation of Christ, of who he is, but it also has been the source of much controversy throughout the history of the church. What is Paul saying here, and how can we understand it correctly to get Jesus right?
1: It is true that, you know, as, as you take a look at the passage, to have somebody's an image, an icon, and if we get the word icon, we use that with the computer, the little pictures that are on the screen are called icons, and that comes from the Greek word icon, which means icon. <laughs> anyway, that's the word that gets used here. But um, I heard it explained to me, and we were looking in the book of Hebrews at that point, uh, imagine a, uh, a class ring or a signet ring, and you take and you impress that class ring or signet ring into soft wax, let it harden a bit, remove it, and the image that is left is the exact representation of what's on the signet ring or what's on your class ring. And you can tell exactly what's there, but I look at the impression. And that's the kind of thing that I've used at times to visualize what Paul says, as here and in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he refers to Christ as the image of God. Uh, another way to look at it is in uh, the Gospel of John, verse 118. John reminds us that nobody has ever seen God. But Jesus who is the only begotten God has revealed him. And I really I really uh, advise translators not that anybody's ever asked me. But if they would, I would say make sure you write down only begotten God, because the person of Jesus is not less than. He is God. He's the exact representation, not a lesser. Mm. You know, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, Genesis one, twenty six and twenty seven. And the author of Genesis at that point, you know, he adds image and likeness. Because image is a fairly specific thing. It's like a miniature version of the original. It's always physical. The word image always denotes something that's physical. Something's lesser. It resembles and it represents. That's what an image is. Lesser, physical, resembles, represents. So. If he had just stopped by saying image, that Adam and Eve are the image of God, we might have got the wrong idea. But he adds the word likeness, which is a very fuzzy word. It's just the word um, like or as, an adverb, turned into an noun, likeness. So it's an image, Adam and Eve are kind of like God, but there's a lot of fuzzy involved here. They're, they're an exact representation, but not exact. They're, they're physical, and lesser, they resemble, but sort of, you know. Mm. You need a little fuzzy, because they're creatures, and the Creator is, of course, God. When you come to Jesus, you don't need the fuzzy. He is the exact impression, just like the original, just as God. Now, within the Godhead, there's going to be a distinction. But that's between the Father and the Son, to distinguish. When we encounter him you know, it's like a mom and dad. If you're mom and dad, they're both parents and you relate to them as parents. Now, between mom and dad, there's a distinction. They have a working relationship and there's a dynamic at work. But as far as the kid goes, mom is a parent, dad is a parent, really doesn't, at least on paper, make any difference because both are parents, both have authorities over you. Now, within the within the parenting relationship, there may be distinctions. So also between the father and the son, there's a distinction because the father begets the son, the son is begotten of the father. But when it comes to... Where is God? There's no other place to look except Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Maybe we want to say not the Father, but the same essence as the Father. He is God. How many gods are there? One. How many? How many? How many uh, divisions can we see within the Godhead? Well, there's Father, Son, and Spirit, but that's all within the internal Godhead. Uh, you know, so you get a hold of Jesus, you get 100% of God. You get a hold of Father, 100% of God. You get a hold of Spirit, 100% of God. Is the Father and the Son the same person? No, they're different. But there's only one God, right? So this is where our mathematics fail us and our mind (laughs) falls apart. Let's just say that you and I want to—it's like Jesus said to Philip in John 14. Philip said, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus said, Philip, bro, you've been with me all this time and you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what we're looking at in
0: verse 15. And this is very helpful because I never thought about how this could be mixed up with the, you know, they were made in God's image and his likeness. And then also Jesus, and the, I guess I never thought about that being an issue, but here he just says he is the image of the invisible God. He doesn't add any other words, like you said, to make it fuzzy. It is very clear that he is of the same, of the same, um, well, like you said, with the stamp, you know, it's it's the same. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. We get to see it. It's right there in front of us. And, uh, and there's no questions about the truth that you said before.
1: You know, and really, this is not simply something that's restricted to the first century A.D. This is something that is current every century since and in our own. Mm-hmm. When we begin to talk about Jesus, it's really common, the first place Satan will deceive us, is when we begin to think of him as something that's not truly, really God. Um, In this umbrella system of false doctrine known as Gnosticism, it was a really common idea that Jesus' kind kind of middle-level management, somewhere between the the big cojona on top and all the little lesser minions down at the bottom, that somewhere in between them was this uh, middle-level management guy, Jesus, kind of like project manager or something like that. Right. Um, as a result, uh, you know, one of the things Paul wants to do is to make sure we understand he's not middle level. He is God, and if we're going to talk about all the other beings in the spirit world or, for the matter, in the physical world, he's at the top of the whole heap. He's <laughs> yeah. the number one above everything, not only in power, but also in origin. He's the guy that got the whole thing started, as well as when it comes to renewal, um, the resurrection age, he's the firstborn of the resurrection. So whether we talk about the age in which we live now, that would be Jesus gets us started, he makes it it's for him. Or whether it's at the resurrection age, which would be very different from this age, that would be also Jesus who gets us started, firstborn from the dead. So there's a preeminence about Jesus who is not less than God, but it's also not identical to the father, except as far as being as certain in which one is the father. And it's really easy to confuse, helps have a little humility here.
0: It, it reminds me of, uh, during college, you talked about the Trinity, and after you get done with the Trinity talk, all of us were looking at each other like, I'm confused. And our professor goes, oh good, you're confused too. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, yeah. some of that.
0: <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs>
1: No, I was just going to say, anybody that thinks they have the Trinity figured out has got it wrong. Yeah,
0: right, that's true, that's true. I kid
1: you not. (laughs) You know, and if I I may say, there's so many things in life that we can't figure out. You know, maybe we're good at one thing, not so good at another. Um, And then somehow we have this weird imagination that we who are so limited and whose minds are are so prone to self-delusion and self-deception, we're going, to, we're going to figure God out. We're going to get him in a box, and it's going to be a totally understandable box, and then we can manipulate it. Um, no, that's kind of the—no, you not going to— you can make a lot of little plastic Jesuses and a lot of little toy gods, and they ain't going to have the real thing.
0: Absolutely. Now, we have about two minutes here before our break. I wanted to at least touch on this before we go to our break. It says, The firstborn of all creation— this can be, you know, this whole, this verse, and like I said, we could spend the whole hour on this, and this part seems like it could be kind of confusing. Firstborn of all creation, oh, yeah. meaning he's born? Or what does this mean?
1: Well, in this case, you know, um, you talk about inheritance laws and who's the preeminent person when it comes to inheritance, you know, if that's the firstborn. Firstborn male is going to get a double share of the inheritance, um, plus the fact the first of any The firstborn, same within the family, will have an authority and will have a position. The rest don't. And what we have when we have Christ is we have someone who shares our mortal nature by virtue of the Incarnation. Somebody who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. But we also have truly God. Now, if we're going to talk about him as being both truly God and truly man, he is part of creation and that he's taken on himself our creation. But he is also preeminent. He was never born. It was there was never a point that he began because before that he wasn't. That requires us to sort of extend time before the beginning of the time space continuum, which you can't do. But it's, it is to say that who is got the category of firstborn? Who's got the preeminence? Who's got the authority and the power and the position? And that would be Jesus. In all creation, he's the one who's at the top, just like the firstborn of a dynasty might be uh, that position. Um, But yeah, you don't want to bend the term and make it sound like somehow there was a beginning for God, or in this case, uh, Jesus. There is a beginning for Jesus in the incarnation, but Jesus is eternal. There was never a beginning for him as we consider the Son of God who became flesh. In other words, the incarnation is real and took place in time, but the Son of God who is Christ incarnate was from the beginning with the Father, and before that. Although I, I don't know how you deal with a non-temporal temporal issue to go back before time when you're talking about time.
0: Well, this might be a good a good uh, new book for you to write. I think that might be good. How do you deal <laughs> with that? Yeah,
1: explaining the Trinity in simple terms. Oh, <laughs> uh, finally I, we I got a book know. on
0: it. No, it's kidding. The one of the one of the things, I just want to break this down for a moment, because it, it can be very confusing, but it's very important to have a very clear confession of who Christ is. That we speak, and this is confirmation type of, of information, is that, so before there was time, before there was creation, there was God, the triune God. Mm-hmm. Then, what we understand from Scripture, you know, Jesus becomes incarnate, um, we see Jesus, uh, obviously the Trinity, always at work in the Old Testament. Is that when it says "firstborn of all creation," we're talking about as the incarnate God? And make sure I get this right. So I want you to to help me. As as the, as he became incarnate, he is the firstborn of. So he's the preeminent of everything that's been part of this earth or part of this world. Um, is that a way yeah. to say that, or how would you? Yeah. Clarify
1: that. Well, you know, as far as his status goes. He's, he's at the top. That's
0: the yeah. position
1: of the firstborn. And as far as has he been there before the beginning of time, sure. Uh, can you say Jesus created the world? Well, yes, sir. yes, Jesus is God in the flesh, and the Son of God is the agent of creation, and Jesus is that Son. Does that mean the, the incarnation is just a fiction? No. There was a point in time at which the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee." So, I mean, it's just this uh, challenge to us as locked into the time-space continuum to begin to think about a little bit God, who is not locked into the time-space continuum. He is before, and he is above. He is the one who started it, and he'll be the one that brings it to an
0: end. And this is this is a great place for us to take a break um, because as we look at this, we've set the foundation for the rest of our verses. So right now we need to take this break. We are studying Colossians chapter one with Dr. Uh, Doctor Elaine Berglund, and we'll be right back. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org and welcome back we are studying colossians chapter one with pastor lane berglund and as we have been uh, Uh, slowly moving forward in our text today has been so important for us to be able to distinguish and to clarify and to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is, that he's not a lesser than God the Father. Um, He is not a firstborn child as far as that he was born into this life. He was there before there was even creation, but also he's preeminent and also the truth. So I want to do this, uh, Dr. Berglund is let's read verses 16 and 17 and we can unpack it even further of what the first verse uh, lays as the groundwork 16 and 17 for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. I get the impression here, uh, Pastor Berglund, and this is almost like a, a, a creed that he is confessing here. That he is he is really uh, making sure that the Colossians and other people who read this understand fully who Jesus is, because he brings yeah, up absolutely. everything and says all, 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 all. How would you describe what he's doing here?
1: Yeah, you know, in six verses, Paul uses everything or the all. Uh, in six verses, he uses seven times. And it is a creed. In fact, uh, I don't think there's, I don't know, maybe there's an English translation that sets it out like a poem or a creedal statement. But uh, in the most recent version of the, the Greek original, Nestle's 28, it's set out, verse 15 through 18, as, uh, or 15 through 20, as a creedal statement, one line followed by another line, and so forth. Because it is very much like the, the Nicene Creed. It's uh, an early Christian statement of faith. And uh, it it points out to readers and to listeners today that if we can spend a little time simply asking and answering the question, who is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? You know, who is he whom we depend on for our salvation, whom we follow as Lord and give our lives to and for sometimes? that That's going to set the rest of our discussion uh, in in a solid uh, foundation and footing. And in this particular case, you know, he talks about all things are created. Um, I know that it's not in fashion in, in the world since, say, the Enlightenment, um, but there's a visible world and there's an invisible world. There is a world of the human beings and a world of spiritual beings. And that world of spirit or the world of spiritual beings was very much a matter of a discussion in the first several centuries of the Christian era and there was speculation, and the uh, speculation sometimes got pretty extreme. There are books like 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Enoch, and so forth, where there was a lot of speculation on uh, what ranks and what authorities and what titles did these angels have, because titles are important in many parts of the world. And so there were rulers and authorities and powers and, and, and all these. And these are technical terms that show up in the text that we're reading here, and above all of them, above all this, imagine the military, like you got generals and captains and privates. Imagine that you've got this entire military of invisible beings and the guy who's chief and commander of the whole shebang, that's Jesus. And that's that's really what we're talking about here. Um, there are invisible beings. There are Satan and his angels. There are Michael and Gabriel and the angels that stuck uh, with God during whatever happened between the angels and God at one point early in creation, just before, it's hard to say. Suffice to say, we don't really have any information. God saw fit not to give it to us. So maybe we don't need it. Maybe we shouldn't speculate really too much on it. They did. And what Paul wants to say is, guys, I don't know what kind of beings you think you've got a hold of powerful fallen angels, invisible. But it doesn't make any difference. Jesus is over them all. And for anybody that's ever been involved in spiritual warfare or in exorcisms, this becomes very relevant and it becomes very important. Now, I know that in our in our country, we may not run into it very often. I have a friend that has mm-hmm. where he works with uh, an immigrant uh, community where that's still a real problem. And I've also had friends who've worked in third-world countries where it's still a real problem. And if you're going to... Um, to address it and fight it, you need to recognize there is a world of, of invisible beings, spirit beings, whatever, but that we never need to fear, for Jesus is Lord of all. And so, for the modern reader, we, we just go through this stuff, this list about authorities and rulers and so forth. Um, we, we do ourselves a disservice that way. I understand that there, there are some um, fallen angels that are very powerful, some angels that we, we use the term confirmed to bless, to stuck with God, that are very powerful, but above all of them is Jesus. So we, we don't want to disrespect or make fun of any um, demons or, or angels, and maybe that should shape some of our Halloween costumes. Do not make fun of or disrespect, but on the other hand, we do not need to fear. Right. And that when we look at Jesus, we're looking at the guy who's head over everything.
0: Well, and one of the things that I've noticed especially during the last 10 to 15 years is that there's a very strong interest in the invisible aspects of life that, uh, you know, you have specifically movies and books, you know, so like uh, the show, uh, stranger things has the upside down, which is literally the other dimension, the other side, you know, it's the same, but it's not the same. And you have, uh, other other movies that have had demons and conjuring. I, I, I get into some of this stuff, Dr. Berglund, but it, it's interesting because people are very interested in this other side, this spiritual world, this invisible world that's there that we cannot see and ask the question, what's there? But it ends quickly because they don't really see God as the Lord over that. They see it as something like God's over here and the devil's over there. He had, he's the Lord over that area. God's the Lord over this area, if they even believe in God. Um, And and then they see it more like a one-on-one battle. But here, what we're hearing is that, no, it's not um, an equal battle. It's a God is in control of all of it, the things that we see the things that we Absolutely. don't see, right? I mean, and that's that's a big difference from what culture sees. They're interested in that stuff, but they see it more as an equal battle that God might lose the game, right, lose the <laughs> the war, those kind yes. of things. Well, and that, that's an important you distinction. You the,
1: uh, the three-season series, Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, you know, I've seen it, too, and the thing that I wish they could have, and this is true across the board of this sort of um, treatment, whether it's movies or books or, or series on TV, um, uh, recognize the authority of Jesus. Right. Understand the the Lordship, the absolute sovereignty of the living God, that there is nothing and no one that is above him or even equal to him. Now that everything's under his authority, of course, we living on this planet with sinful minds and with a failure to understand, we're going to imagine this as, uh, a battle of equals. Why? Because it kind of looks that way to us. But, you know, we're, first of all, not that bright. Number two, we don't see everything. And number three, we don't have a mind that's able to comprehend and, and work with it. So as a result, we, you know, it's like kind of like the Greeks. Uh, and the Greeks, they, they sort of broke things down. Why do things happen? One side said things happen just because of luck. You know, it's just, your, just your bad luck, your good luck, fortune, whatever. The other side said, no, it's all fate. No, it's all set. Um, and they're both wrong. It's God. God's at work in a broken world to do wonderful things, and all things do work together for him, for good, to those who are called according to his purpose for them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how it looks from his side is going to be way different from how it looks from ours. We just see little bits and pieces. And, this, and the, the image
0: is often, yeah. It, yeah. No, go ahead. The image is often what?
1: Well, it's just like the, you know, the traditional picture of watching someone make a quilt from the underside of the quilt. On the top side, you can see the pattern. On the other side, you see a mess. Life looks like a mess to us because we're not seeing it from God's side. For God, and that's been one really cool definition of the word hope. Hope is defined as believing that from God's perspective, everything makes sense. Everything we go through makes sense from his side. And you go, what do you really want for us? Well, he wants salvation for us. That's the glory of his name, to save sinners. Therefore, if his concerns say sinners, I'm thinking Romans 8 here, mm-hmm. and that it makes sense to him, then our response is to relax and trust in him. You know, it's like Isaiah says in chapter 30, in, in quietness and trust is your salvation. In, in returning and in rest is your salvation. Quietness and trust is your strength. Relax. He's in charge. No, no power can equal to him. He's working everything for good. Whatever he asks us to go through, there'll be a reason for it, and he'll be with us, and he'll see us through it. Faith intact. We might die along the way. That's not such a big deal. We're going to die anyway. But we can trust him, and we need to trust him. Otherwise, we're going to get messed up.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Think about that problem for just a little bit, our lack of trust. But we'll get into that another, another maybe a little bit later, as we go through more of these verses. Is, and is This is an important distinction, too, and I really appreciate how you're breaking this down. Because we, especially during Lent, we go to Holy Week and we look at the cross and we see, okay, and this is exact this is all true, is that there Jesus has died for me. This is the for you-ness of Lutheran theology. Understanding of this this forgiveness is for you. This gift, these gifts are for you. But also, we then sometimes might make a disconnect of that, okay, Jesus died for me, and he rose for me, and yeah, he did for the world, but also in the same token, he reigns on high at the right hand of God and has full authority over everything. And so it's not just yeah. me and Jesus getting forgiven, but he has authority over everything. And this is and this is why we can trust in him. Everything is under his feet, as Ephesians one twenty two says. Everything is yeah. under his, in the palm of his hands, as I often will say.
1: You know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus yeah. says. Therefore, here's the job, guys. I'm <laughs> going gonna, gonna to send you out. Now, this is the work. Make disciples, make students. How do you do that? Well, baptizing and teaching. And oh, by the way, you don't have to do it on your own. I'm with you always, yeah. even to the end of the age, the resurrection.
0: As, as Philippians says, uh, the Lord is at hand. I Meaning, it's not just uh, the Lord who's coming after you, but the Lord is at your hand and helping you and serving you and being with us every step along the way. I think this is a good segue for us to go to verse 18 and go through 20 as it tells us not only is the Lord over all creation, but also the church. Verses 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This, <laughs> these words are so rich. I, I feel like this might be a good thing for you, our listeners, and for us as pastors, to almost read this before we go preach. Um, not only luther's uh you know uh, prayer and the sacristy prayer, but to read these words because he says, first of all, he is the head of the body of the church. Why is it important for us to know that he's the head of the church
1: that that we matter, and that he hasn't overlooked us, forgotten us, nor cavalierly disregarded us. Mm. That is to say, what Jesus is doing in the world is saving people it's it's this wonderful fishing trip where he captures people alive for the gospel. Like, you know, there's a, in Luke uh, chapter five, fisher of men and a rare word used in the original to capture alive. It captures Mm -hmm. for life, not for death. When we go fishing, we capture an ender, right? Sometimes anyway, but no, Jesus captures us alive to be alive forever with him. Um, That, that the purpose of the work of Jesus is doing in this world is to save people. It's for the sake of the church that we're not overlooked, we're not left behind. And he is firstborn uh, of all creation, therefore he is number one position in all creation. But he is also firstborn from the dead, means number one in all of the resurrection age. Now, we have not seen the resurrection age come in except in in A part, as in Christ firstborn from the dead, raised from the dead, the now not yet tension of the Christian life. But there is a the time coming when the time-space continuum ends. Time won't apparently exist, in my my observation. That space will be differently defined. And I think of it as maybe a different dimension entirely. But when that time comes, flesh and blood cannot inherit that. But we ask, well, who is the position of the number one guy, the firstborn position in the resurrection age? And the answer is Jesus, just like the answer is Jesus, who is the firstborn in the created order. And that the... the purpose of this delay in Jesus' return to just living the dead is, as Peter explains in Second Peter, to gather more people in, to expand the church, to glorify the name of the living God by the salvation of yet more people, and to grow larger the choir of those who know him and love him and live with him always. So it is very encouraging, you know, when you and I look at the Sturm and throng, the troubles that we engage and encounter in our lives. And I doubt that there's any listener, and certainly I know from personal experience, any person that doesn't have a list of problems to deal with in life. Mm -hmm. That there's a reason that God will weave it together for good, and that the purpose that God has in mind is the salvation of people through faith in Christ. So yes, it's very encouraging before we preach, before we get up in the morning, to remember I have a job today. My job as a Christian is to do the work that God gives me to do so that He can advance His kingdom and you know, when we pray Thy Kingdom come in the Lord's prayer. That's probably part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And and this is interesting when you said that he's you know, Fisher of Men, and and speak about he's going for the living. He's, he's fishing not for the sake of a meal, but for the sake of of our lives. And and I thought about this. You know, being from Minnesota, you hear a lot of fishing stories. And and oh, the yeah. unique thing about God is he doesn't he doesn't uh, embellish his fishing stories. <laughs> He doesn't. No, he's the only one that doesn't. I bet exactly. Yeah. So I thought that was a very good point of of thinking of this, and and at the same time, you hear it all the time from many different Christians, is that this church is not our church. Messiah Lutheran Church, where I'm at, is not is not my church. This is not our church. This is God's church. This is the church of Jesus. And and then and then it goes really
1: important to remember that
0: it is it really is and 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 then it goes into revelation talk you know I am the Alpha and the Omega He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead Um, the fullness of God not only was dwelling in incarnate Jesus but was pleased to dwell Do you have any thoughts on that That really struck me as I saw that word. It's
1: it's it's a funny verse because the word of God doesn't show up in the fullness of whom in in the original doesn't say the fullness of what. The word fullness is one of those technical terms in this false teaching that was so common in the early centuries. It meant the whole totality of all the world of spirit beings, from the generals on down to the privates. The whole smear is called the fullness. But we know that's not what Paul has in mind here, because the fullness was pleased to dwell in Christ. Well, the fullness of what? Well, in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul spells it out, the fullness of godness. And it's funny the way he says it in 2, verse 9, because he doesn't— word- the fullness of God, but the fullness of Godness. It's an abstract noun. Um, and you and I can make an abstract noun by simply taking a noun, uh, habit, and then adding the, the NES or something like that to the end. I needed to choose a different noun, which I didn't. But, you know, good, <laughs> there's an adjective, making an abstract noun, goodness. Hey, that works. Yeah. So you take the word divine and make it an abstract noun, divinity. All mm. the fullness of divinity of whatever you can think of as God, whatever is truly, really God, was pleased to dwell in Christ. And it, and, and the word pleased, you know, this today, uh, you almost said, I am ple- listen to him, I am pleased with you kind of thing that God mm-hmm. says to Jesus, uh, or um, uh, peace on earth, goodwill towards men among whom God is pleased, with whom uh, God is pleased, yeah. Luke 2. Uh, that's a technical term scripturally. There's several you know, very important terms that pop up in here, but this is the one on whom the favor God rests. God looks and says I like I like it that you're the one I had in mind when I built this house I have a place for you come here um, and the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in a human being a real born of a woman human being Jesus of Nazareth not just someone that appeared popped up like a human being you know not like uh, Clark Kent uh, Superman who came in from the planet Krypton we're not importing somebody from outside this is actual real. Uh, this is more like Bruce Wayne, the Batman, because he was like actually really a human being.
0: There you go.
1: Um, and so when we come to the fullness of God, everything that we can know about God and everything that is God, you find in this one, Jesus who has reconciled everything in heaven, and on earth. Doesn't mean that, that it was like when, when Jesus is born, the angels say peace on earth, goodwill to men, uh, kind of building the old, English, old King James. Uh, and then when, um, uh, Jesus enters triumphantly in Luke 19, uh, verse 38, uh, peace in heaven and uh, on earth. How, and so he went minute. there's peace in heaven, yeah. God has reconciled people with each other because he has reconciled people with himself. That's kind of like Ephesians 2. God reconciles us, first half, with him. Second half of Ephesians 2, he's reconciled us with each other. And that's where Paul's going to go in the next several verses.
0: Absolutely. He's reconciled
1: Gentiles with Jews because he's reconciled human beings with himself.
0: Well, there's so many things we could connect this with, and the first one I wanted to say is this understanding of that you know, this is my son of whom I'm well pleased at Jesus' baptism, and it, it connects to our own baptism. That there their God uh, is pleased to dwell in us, you know, um, in in the baptismal waters, and we're understanding that that uh, I've been crucified with Christ, and no longer I live, but Christ who lives mm-hmm. in me. I mean, these things all come back together. It reminds us. It proclaims. It, it it just shows us that we're reconciled. And then I love how he says it here: is making peace by the blood of his cross. And any thoughts on that last verse yeah. before we move on?
1: Well, it's just that that which, which makes possible God to do well in us, the forgiveness of sins, which can be also called redemption, which is where you buy something back, or reconciliation where two po- parties that are at odds with each other are brought back together in harmony. There are several words that are used to describe the effect of the cross, but in the physical crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the spiritual reconciliation of God and man was effected. And not only that, but Christ, and this is the the mystery that we're going to read about here in the next two verses in in Ephesians, excuse me, in Colossians 1, it appears in Ephesians 2, for what it's worth, Yes, Mm -hmm. is that Christ dwells in you Gentiles. That you don't have to go through circumcision, you don't have to obey the Mosaic law, but by faith alone, Christ dwells in you. And that is the amazing blow-me-away mystery, that you and I get to be part of the covenant of eternal life, that God established with Abraham by faith without going through the Mosaic law to get there. It's a gift.
0: Let's move on to verses 21 through 23, and he unfolds it even more for us to see the, the light that shines upon us in Christ. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which you have been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he, he starts with, this is who you were, and then he talks about reconciliation with the Lord by his flesh and his death. What is Paul telling us here?
1: But you can use a couple of different words and word pictures to describe this. You know, one is justification, which comes from a courtroom, where the judge says not only you're not guilty, but you have fulfilled all the requirements for the great reward. Or you can use the word save, which means you're in predicament, somebody rescued you from it. Or you can use the word redeem, which means you've been purchased. Or you can use the word reconciled, which means the hostility which existed between God and man, sin, was effectively dealt with, permanently by the blood of Christ, his death on the cross under the law for us lawbreakers. And then, of course, in his resurrection, we will see the resurrection aged on in him who rose the firstborn from the dead. But the other side of the point is that Paul is a servant. And I, I think there's one verse that really identifies Paul's mission as just Acts 20, 24, because so in Acts chapter 20, verse 24 warned that he's going to suffer if he goes to Jerusalem, he says, well, you know, my life doesn't matter that much for me. My life is not that important to me. What's important is I complete the ministry given to me by my Lord Jesus Christ to declare the gospel of the grace of God amongst the the people. You know, and you go, wow, whether I live or die doesn't matter that much to me. What matters to me is me doing my job. That's it. Uh, And that's kind of just what Paul has said here Have Mm -hmm. this tremendous gift of reconciliation, which isn't going to do anybody a bit of good without personal faith in Christ. So he has gone out, as directed, as commissioned, as given by God to do in Christ when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus and said, you will be my witness before the Gentiles, before their kings, and even before my people Israel. That's the way Jesus described the mission. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's a servant of Jesus Christ who is the firstborn of the dead a firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead of the new creation. So you would think he would be just in great situation and shape because he's like the ambassador of mm-hmm. the living God who is the head of everything. So where is he at? The Hotel Hilton and the top floor? No, he's in prison. <laughs> that's his
0: next section. And that's and that's where uh, you understand even more reading this, his understand, his high Christi- Christology that he already has makes us better understand why he's able to say in Philippians, rejoice always. We're able to see it here that he believed, and we know to be true, present you holy and blameless and above reproach before the Lord. And, and so he understands this relationship with God is completely set. This is how God sees me. This is where God has me. Uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain, he believed as well. So that's why he continued on. And the ministry that he's about to explain to us is, is, is dependent upon Christ and what he has done for us. Now, Pastor, we have only about three minutes to finish this thing out. So I'm going to read the rest, and I want you to give us your final thoughts. Okay, here we go. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this, his energy that he powerfully works within me. Pastor, in about actually about three and a half minutes, tell us what is he talking about, his ministry to the church?
1: that the ministry of the gospel will encounter hostility, and if you're following Christ, you better be prepared to keep your cross, even on a daily basis, and then face the suffering that comes with it. Paul will use one of those sort of, immensely important words, energy, energize, at the uh, last verse here. Mm. The energy which is God at work amongst people, and it's used only a couple of times to refer to the, Energy or the energizing by Satan of the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians two, mm-hmm. almost always that word that gets, could be translated energize or energy. We get our English word from it. Refers to the uh, the God at work with His power, with His purpose, by His Holy Spirit, to bring to us the authority and the um, necessary gut strength and insight to accomplish this thing. Um, source of what we need to do our job is God. You know, this is the age in which the Holy Spirit is poured out. Uh, The enemy has been bound, so we'll no longer deceive the nations and stop the gospel from going out, Revelation 20, verse 3, and that what we see happening is this wonderful gift that as people hear the word of God, they are personally reconciled. Talk about object and subject of reconciliation. Mm. It's a fait accompli on God's side, but it doesn't impact us. It becomes our faith, a gift of faith to us, brings us into that solid relationship uh, that has been reconciled through Christ's death and resurrection. But we need to understand that we're going to be in for a rocky road. We need to understand that if we confess Christ, we're going to face difficulties and hardships. And I tell you, it's really it's fascinating to, to sort of check this out. Um, set, a t- set aside time in your life, say half an hour in the morning, for reading the Bible and prayer. Pretty simple, right? See mm-hmm. okay, well, how often you get that half an hour without something strange popping up. Same thing with saying, well, I'm going to go to church. First time I go to church for a long time. I'm going to go to church. See if you don't have a lot of other things suddenly pop up, kind of get in the way. Um, a whole host of reasons, you know, there's going to be all sorts of opposition. I'm going to tell my friend about Jesus. See if your friend likes that. See if he in other words, what Paul's talking about as he is is following Christ and Christ suffering on the cross for our sins, is that he is as he is a um, filling in his obligation and as he's completing his commission, he is encountering the same type of suffering and it's a necessary very component for the expansion of the church because we're breaking into the kingdom of satan the kingdom of god is at work but the energy behind it the thing that empowers it, me you and anybody else who knows christ as their savior is god himself and he can get it done even if we can't the encouragement is we're going to face trouble but he's with us and he'll see us through it and he'll get the work done so don't let the opposition the hardship bothers it's a whole lot better to take up the cross and follow jesus than to walk away and be lost forever.
0: Pastor, we have about a minute left and have so much that we have heard today. How would you summarize these powerful words of Holy Scripture?
1: Do not accept any lesser (laughs) substitutes. You will see and you will hear and you will run into a whole lot of fake Jesuses that are sold, whether it's on TV or by false teachers. There's a million of them out there. Do not accept a cheap substitute. Look to Scripture. Learn the real Christ, who is Lord of all, Lord of creation, Lord of the resurrection, in whom there is full salvation, reconciliation with God. And if for some reason things turn south in your life and hardships come, don't let it bother you. You understand, God is at work. This is a necessary part of his work in us and through us, because he's going to shape us and train us. He's going to purge us and purify and prune us. And he will turn us into the people he wants us to be to do the work that he wants done, which is likely going to get us into more trouble in the world. Don't let it bother you. This is what God is doing. And if God is doing it, we can be sure of the outcome, which will be the salvation of souls and the glory of our Lord's name.
0: Reverend Dr. Lane Berglund, author of How to Read the Bible with Understanding from Concordia Publishing House, helping us to study Colossians chapter 1. Dr. Berglund, thank you for being our guest.
1: Um, Pastor Fennin, thanks for having me, and may the Lord grant grace to all who are listening.
0: Saints of our Lord, you are reconciled to the Lord by the death of our Lord Jesus, and on account of him, you are presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him this proclaim this we proclaim this is our hope and all we can say is rejoice and thanks be to god i'm your host brady finner pastor of messiah lutheran church in sartell minnesota thank you for joining us and the lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands